Hi, this is Jeff Cobra, and we welcome you to this Disney at Play podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, welcome to Fantasyland. We return to our 50th anniversary series, where we see the Magic Kingdom as brand new Disney cast members learned about it back in 1971. Again, the setting is that Walt Disney World is set to open. You have thousands of new cast members, most of whom have never seen a Disney theme park, and you need to orient them to that experience. The only problem is that the park isn't open or ready yet either. So how do you give them that understanding? Well, enter a series of handbooks put out by the University of Walt Disney World, as it was called then. In these printed materials, cast members were introduced to the setting in which they would work. There's one for each of the lands of the park, plus the resort. We've covered several already, but in this podcast, we'll look at Fantasyland. We'll overview legendary attractions like It's a Small World and Cinderella's Golden Carousel. But we'll also reminisce about attractions long forgotten like the Fantasyland Skyway, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and the Mickey Mouse Review. On the opening, this was the biggest land in the Magic Kingdom, with more than twice the number of attractions than found in any of the other lands at that time. If you yearn for the Walt Disney World of yesteryear, or you want to know what these two lands, or what this land was like back in the early days of the park, this is your podcast. As we continue our efforts to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. By the way, uh, make sure you check out um, DisneyAtPlay.com where we'll have some um, images and other notes and links um, uh, relative to this podcast. And make sure that you subscribe while you're there at DisneyAtPlay.com because it'll help notify you of new podcasts that come out, which we try to do on Tuesdays and Fridays. Not always perfect, as you probably all know, but uh, we try our very best to do that with all of the craziness happening uh, in the world right now. So please uh, check us out, subscribe, and if you get a chance, go to your favorite uh, a podcast subscriber or especially iTunes and if possible give us a, a positive review or rating it really helps the smallest podcast that ever could um, to um, to uh, get a little bit um, of uh, notice out there in the potosphere or whatever we want to call that um, by the way I have to say that speaking of things that you're going to find I'll put in an image of the cover for the Fantasyland handbook, which, uh, if you recall from the last one, Liberty Square, had a had an interesting picture of Main Street on it because they didn't have any pictures of Liberty Square uh, yet built uh, for the handbook. This one clearly kind of gives us an indication when this thing came out because the picture has a scrolled sign on the front of the castle saying, remember, opening October 1971. That was at Roy's request when he saw a, a number of workers not really working. So he kind of put some reminders out there in the park that uh, we had an opening date back then. Well, let's uh, take a look at chapter one. And uh, it's a pretty, lots to cover here. And it begins with a quotation 
from Walt Disney, although my guess is Marty Sklar probably helped write it out for Walt. It's very comparable to the kind of quotations you see in um, the Disneyland guidebooks that were available. Quote, when we were planning Fantasyland, I recalled the lyrics of the song, When You Wish Upon a Star. The words of that melody from our picture, Pinocchio, inspired us to create a land where dreams could actually come true. In Fantasyland, those classic stories of childhood have become actual realities for you to participate in. Here, in the happiest kingdom of them all, you can journey with Snow White through the dark forest to the home of the seven dwarfs, fly with Peter Pan from the clutches of Mr. Smee and Captain Hook, and race with Mr. Toad on his wild auto ride through old London town. End of quote. Walt Disney. By the way, I, what's interesting about this, again, you're, you're, this is being, these handbooks are being prepared not just for people who had never seen Magic Kingdom, they're being prepared by people who had never seen the Magic Kingdom either. They, they know Disneyland. They don't know what Walt Disney World exactly looks like. Yeah, they have a list of attractions, and those three did show up on opening day. But they reference here, When You Wish Upon a Star, which when you step through Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland has always been Jiminy Cricket singing that song from the movie. It always happens when you walk through that castle. However, and by the way, what, um, uh, well, and, but uh, what's ironic about this is when you step through Cinderella Castle, what you actually hear is a dream, is a wish your heart makes, not when you wish upon a star. And all this is ironic because when Disneyland was built, there actually was no real attraction that was connected to Pinocchio. However, when the Magic Kingdom was built, there was, well, Pinocchio's Village Haas, which is uh, the uh, restaurant, the main restaurant there in Fantasyland. Goes on to say, Walt's philosophy of the original Fantasyland has been the key in designing the Magic Kingdom's land of fantasy. Here we have created an area for the young and young at heart, an ex area of excitement and childhood dreams, an area where imagination comes true. It, be it begins long before you reach the entrance to Fantasyland. It begins miles away when you first see the towering spires of Cinderella Castle rising 180 feet against the Florida sky. Mind you, uh, 79 feet is the height of Sleeping Beauty Castle. So um, there was either one of two things that occurred when you built the Magic Kingdom. Either you built an attraction that there was never an equivalent to at Disneyland, like uh, the Mickey Mouse Review or the Country Bear Jamboree, or you took existing kinds of attractions and you put them on steroids. You took them to the next level. In this case, Cinderella Castle being 100 feet higher than the one at Disneyland. Goes on to say Cinderella's Castle and by the way, it says Cinderella's with an apostrophe S. That's how they did it later on. The nomenclature, I was always uh, corrected by Amy Drew um, when I worked at Disney. It is Cinderella Castle when um, referred to by the company today. But at any rate, can't remember all the reason why. But at any rate, that's the case. Cinderella's Castle is actually a composite of castles built in France during the 15th century and was inspired by the, Cinder by the Disney movie Cinderella released in 1950. 
Cinderella's story will be depicted in five mosaic murals lining the entrance way through the castle, appearing in the shape of um, a Gothic arch 15 feet high and um, uh, 10 feet wide. These murals were designed by Disney artist Dorothea Redman and were skillfully crafted by Hans Joachim Sharif in Hollywood. Now, what I find interesting about this is, um, and I'll just stop here for a moment. Well, I'll, let me just go on and talk about King Stephens for a moment. However, instead of dungeons beneath the castle, there are service tunnels and storage facilities which provide underground connections to many parts of the Magic Kingdom. The only dungeon uh, in a castle is actually in Paris. The parapet level is the location, parapet I guess is second floor, it's a fancy word for second floor, is the location of one of the Magic Kingdom's finest restaurants, King Stephen's Banquet Hall. This 13th century French style waitress service restaurant will feature beef and chicken variations, which guests will select from a menu downstairs in the main foyer of the castle hall. They will then ascend to the main banquet room by elevator to enjoy their a regal repast. Now, uh, the, uh, the, where I was going to go with all of this is, is there was a musical created um, called Camelot, which is, by the way, the, the Broadway version of that was how Walt Disney actually encountered Julie Andrews for um, when he was considering who to play Mary Poppins. But the film version of Camelot was done in 1967. And to me, a lot of the look and feel of King Stephen's Banquet Hall, as well as the look and feel of the murals. If you look at Cinderella, for instance, her hair is combed and designed differently than it is in the original. It, do, it doesn't quite look like the same characters and the, and the kind of details or designs in, in the costumes of those in the mural and so forth. To me, is more reminiscent of the film Camelot than it is of the film Cinderella. And I think it's ironic because that film came out approximately four years before uh, Walt Disney World opened. In the castle courtyard, there are several interesting shops. Among them is Tinkerbell's Toy Shop, a fairy tale come true for children of all ages. This bright shop features Disney toys of all types and a fine selection of model toys. Of course, no castle would be complete without magic, and Cinderella's castle has a Merlin's magic shop. Sleight of hand illusions will be demonstrated as magicians do reveal their tricks. The, those same tricks, toys, and games will be available to the guests. Next door is the Aristocats gift souvenir shop, which will feature Disney character merchandise, handbags, and jewelry primarily for teenagers. Across the way is the Castle Camera Shop, which will specialize in moderately priced cameras and accessories, including film. Nearby is the Royal Candy Factory, a unique operation in um, candy making that can be viewed by the guests through large windows. The Candy Factory features two polar size and twister sucker making machines that can produce over 2,500 suckers <laughs> per day. I love the languaging here, huh? Too funny. Um, 
but this is what they're telling you in this thing. And then they finally say, while touring this area, guests will meet a seven-piece strolling pearly band themed after Mary Poppins, released in 1965. Featured within this group will be a comical character with a, a kadiddle hopper. Um, okay, I'm just going to stall here because I was not looking, I was not prepared to have to do a, a, uh, a, uh, a kadiddle is spelled K-A-D-I-L-D-L-E-H-O-P-P-E-R, kadiddle hopper, and it, um, what is the meaning of the word kadiddle hopper? Uh, well, actually, it's, I thought that would be like a musical instrument. But it's a comical character. It's a character who emphasizes naiveness. And they they give an example of uh, Red Skelton, a former um, uh, character who um, played that. Red Skelton played a similar character in that role. It's kind of like a version of Dopey, of the Seven Dwarfs is kind of how I see this. Now, let me just sum up a couple of things going on here with all that has been described to you. First off, um, let's talk about what's actually in the castle. In uh, the one um, item in that is not listed here is called the King's Gallery. And that actually was a shop that was inside the castle itself. Um, uh, Tinkerbell Toy Shop is adjacent to the Mickey Mouse Review on the left side as you come into Fantasyland. The others, um, the castle, well, and, and also on that side is the castle camera shop. Um, that is actually what would be the exit to the Mickey Mouse Review or what is the exit to Mickey's Filler Magic. Um, right now and uh also in that area was the mad hatter which was a hat shop so they kind of had a cluster of two shops over on that side and then merlin's magic shop and the aristocats gift shop um were on the right side as you came into Fantasyland before you got to snow white's uh adventures and the royal candy shop is actually in the location that the Cheshire's cat is, or Cheshire's, um, what is that? Little sh um, shop across from the Mad Tea Party that actually serves refreshments uh, now. So it was, a, it was a very different layout back then. And of course, some of these titles, you could tell they were trying to put in something from all their different films. Aristocats really has nothing to do with medieval times. It does have a French European aspect as does the Pearly Band, but again, Mary Poppins is a Victorian thing, not a, a medieval type thing. So it's it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. The Pearly Band is actually um, a broken down version of the Walt Disney World Band. They would play in the morning as an entire band and then they would break up and do smaller groups, in this case, a seven piece band. And then they would come together at the end of the day um, for the flag retreat. Now we move to the Troubadour Tavern. And you're going to be a little surprised because you're going to go, well, where's the Troubadour Tavern? And in truth, that um, 
is actually between Mickey Mouse Review and Peter Pan's Flight. It is no longer, it just sits empty. Now actually, well it actually it was been, it's been kind of retooled as the exit to Peter Pan's Flight and it kind of holds that area, but it is actually not uh, used um, anymore. But the Troubadour Tavern was sponsored by Welch's Grape Juice and provided an attractive setting to obtain a quick thirst-quenching grape drink or fruit juice bar. There was an equivalent to that at Disneyland um, on that side of the park as well, closer to the castle, and it actually had a Fantasia theme to it, and they actually took that mural and replicated it in, um, in the casual dining area at Shanghai Disney Hotel. That is just like, this is inside baseball here. But so you kind of have an idea that's, uh, we're going to talk about a couple other restaurants later on, but that they wanted to mention that one there. Now we go to attractions. Fantasyland Skyway. Have you been, do you remember the Fantasyland Skyway? The Fantasyland Skyway is the, is only the second of its kind installed in the United States. The first was built and installed in Disneyland in 1956. Here at Walt Disney World, 64 passenger cabins will transport guests between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. The Skyway carries the guests high above Fantasyland for a bird's eye view of It's a Small World, Peter Pan's Flight, The Mickey Mouse Review, Pinocchio's Village, Cinderella's Golden Carousel, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It also provides an exhilarating view of the Grand Prix Raceway, uh, that is, if anything about the Grand Prix Raceway, it could be exhilarating. Um, and the Contemporary Hotel, which, by the way, at that time, because there was no Space Mountain, you could clearly see that hotel. It 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 lay as the backdrop of Tomorrowland at that in those early days. The power or drive station for the Skyway is located at the Fantasyland Swiss Chalet. It is connected to the transfer station. This is, by the way, where the Rapunzel bathrooms are. If you have never seen the Skyway, that's where that's located adjacent to It's a Small World. The transfer station changes the direction of the cable and diverts it to uh, the tension or ballast station in Tomorrowland. The tension station keeps the cable taut and will fluctuate according to the amount of cabins on the cable. You probably never knew all that. Um, don't know why they included it here, but now we all know. Cinderella's Golden Carousel. Now, I, we have to recognize this is no longer... Um, it's named after Prince Charming. But, oh, by the way, we it was mentioned uh, King Stephen's Banquet Hall. That was always, again, trying to use all of the different films somewhere in Fantasyland. So they took the name of the king in, um, in Sleeping Beauty and named that after him. So when eventually they made all these changes and made that named after Cinderella and then they made the the carousel named after the prince, but all of this was very confusing at an earlier time. Cinderella's golden carousel will be the focal point of Fantasyland and will wear the gold and white canopy inspired by the tournament tents of the 13th century crusaders. She denote there was a gender to the carousel, but it's a she. She was originally built at the Philadelphia Toboggan Company in 1917, which makes her the oldest attraction in all of Walt Disney World, and was given the name Liberty. She shared, she carried the elaborate patriotism of red, white, and blue shields and carved figures of Miss Liberty. You can still see elements of that as you, 
as you look carefully at the carousel. It was originally built for the Detroit Palace Garden Park and later brought back to her Philadelphia birthplace and rehabilitated in 1928. The carousel began a 39-year reign at the Olympic Park in Maplewood, New Jersey, through depression and wars, Often repainted by less skilled workers, the ornate carvings began to disappear under layers of lacquer. When the Maplewood Park closed, Disney scouts acquired the antique masterpiece, were surprised by the detailed and artistic grace uncovered when all of her paint was removed. You know what? I'm going to just stop right there. That is true today. I have actually seen the horses. What they've done is they've created about seven or eight additional fiberglass versions of the horses, so there's always horses on the carousel and that they can always rotate. It takes a couple of years to rotate them and and to rehab them. But the first thing they do with the rehab is they take all the paint and they bring it back down to its wood structure. And let me tell you, they are beautiful horses even in that um, bare mode. Um, it's pretty impressive. Nearly all the original wood working parts were replaced with metal, but um, the horses and decorations were saved along with the band organ from one of Italy's most famous factories. Around the outer base of the canopy, Disney artists have, have hand-painted 18 separate scenes depicting the Cinderella fairy tale. When complete, the carousel will have 90 different and ornate steeds. All right, now for a very famous one, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This attraction was inspired by the Jules Verne novel of the same name, which was published in 1870. In 1954, Walt Disney Productions released the Academy Award-winning motion picture. Guests will experience the adventures of the Nautilus and her crew as they are transported under the sea on board one of, the tw one of 12 submarines. They will depart from Captain Nemo's base, Volcania, and proceed through 20 story areas, through 20 story areas designed by Wed Enterprise. In other words, 20 different show scenes. Guests will see divers harvesting seawood, seaweed, and roping a giant turtle. They will view Viking ships trapped. Uh, let me turn the page here. In an iceberg and pass through the lost city of Atlantis. Their voyage will be climaxed by a confrontation with the giant squid, which almost destroys the sub. The subs were designed by Maple and built at the Tampa shipyards. Guests will board by means of an air-operated load ramp and step down through hydraulic hatches to sit below the waterline. Um, I don't know if you ever had a chance to do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. To approach the lagoon was breathtaking. The whole setting of seeing these submarines as they kind of sailed through the lagoon and went under the waterfalls, it it took the imagination to a whole new level. Not so much when you actually got on it and went inside and it felt like you were just a couple inches underneath the water, but notwithstanding, um, many, many a child and, and many and many an older child like myself really, really did love that attraction and miss it today. The Pinocchio Village Haus, H-A-U-S. The quaint decor of this in this fast food restaurant was inspired by Walt Disney's classic, film classic, Pinocchio. The Village Haas 
contains six eating areas named after various characters in the story. So there's one for Stromboli um, and the puppets, one for Geppetto, one for Cleo, I believe, um, and Figaro, and, and the one for Monstro the Whale is the one closest to It's a Small World. Hamburgers, hot dogs, and beverages will be featured items here. There will be six serving windows for guest convenience. This location will utilize a, you're gonna love this. This location will utilize a Broil Master Machine to expedite service. This machine, one of three to be used in Walt Disney World, can produce over 2,000 hamburgers per hour. Um, so this was kind of big and new stuff back then. Basically what it was, was a conveyor belt. You threw the hamburger patties on and it went through uh, the fire and that type of thing and got cooked and came out the other side and you put them on a bun and away you go. And they said three in um, Walt Disney World. I imagine that the other two was what ultimately became Cosmic Rays and Pecos Bills back then, which did a lot more hamburgers. While the guests are enjoying their meal, a six-piece rolling polka band will entertain them. Again, a part of the Walt Disney World band. Also in the Pinocchio Village area, the old to toy maker Geppetto strolls down the street with his favorite wooden puppet Pinocchio. Geppetto gre greets guests and stops to let his puppet son perform. Occasionally he will join in the dance. Adjacent to Pinocchio's village will be a staging facility where several entertainment groups will perform. This was kind of known, and I don't think they call it such in this thing, but it was come to be known as the Fantasy Fair. And it was kind of a series of a little couple of tents that sat between Pinocchio's and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and they were able to do little character shows. This was, I think, one of their ideas of what a character show would look like, a little Pinocchio kind of show, um, probably adding the polka band to it and so forth. And um, those shows continued on for years until everything was mowed down for the new Fantasyland Forest. So the Round Table, the Round Table sponsored by Borden is located in the Castle Courtyard and will feature soft ice cream, cold sandwiches and beverages. This is pretty much the same thing you you see that's adjacent to Winnie the Pooh, which is... Um, uh, which at that time was Mr. Toad. Dumbo the Flying Elephant. This attraction brings to life the little circus elephant with huge ears who found to his amazement that he could actually fly. This heartwarming story first portrayed in the Walt Disney movie Dumbo the Flying Elephant released in 1949 is recreated in Fantasyland. Dumbo's friend, a small mouse named Timothy, is seen encouraging Dumbo to pursue his newfound arrow career. The altitude of each of the 10 Dumbos can be regulated by the guests themselves. Each flying elephant can hold two to three guests. By the way, um, this was at that time located uh, kind of behind the carousel toward this Fantasyland Fair, which kind of created, again, the Fantasyland Fair had kind of a circus tent look to it, so it kind of worked that little space, again, between Pinocchio's where right now that you have um, kind of those arches or gates that lead to the Fantasyland Forest is where that, uh, that sits. And actually it's gone through three different versions over the years. The original one, I wanna say had 10, 
arms to it. Uh, well, did it say how many how many Dumbos? Ten Dumbos. So they had ten arms. Then they created a 16-arm version when they created Disneyland Paris and loved that so much that they actually took that one and put it in the Magic Kingdom and they built a second one for Disneyland Paris. And they were both identical for some years from um, 94 to um, until this whole changeover. And then they took it and created um, a storybook circus and created not one but two spinners for Dumbo over on that side of the park. That side of the park where uh, Storybook Circus is didn't have anything back then. It would be Mickey's birthday, um, uh, Mickey's 75th birthday, uh, which um, was 80, uh, was 88 when they actually kind of created, they, they made things happen in that area of the that corner of the park. Peter Pan's Flight. Peter Pan's Flight was inspired by Walt Disney's 1952 full-length animated film, Peter Pan. The stage classic of the same name was written by Sir James Barry and first appeared in London in 1904. In the attraction, guests will follow the same route that Peter Pan, Tinkerbell, and the Darling Children took in the movie. They are transported by means of a miniature flying replica of the pirate ship piloted by Captain Hook. En route, they will encounter all of the story's famous characters while experiencing the illusion of flying high over London town on their way to Never Neverland. Guests will board the attraction from a moving conveyor belt, um, uh, which runs parallel to the pirate galleons. Utilizing this system, the units will not have to stop to load and unload guests. So the original one, you stopped, um, you would stop the ships, load them, and then send them on. It still works that way at Disneyland. They're talking about a new system that would have a conveyor belt similar to the Haunted Mansion. This was kind of new to them. I don't know why they're telling this to cast members who've seen the one at Disneyland, but here they are sharing that. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. So a lot of these things were just kind of a clarification to people who did know Disneyland. What's the difference? But again, very few people really fell into that category that were being hired that this book was intended for. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. The motor misadventures of Mr. Toad, the playboy character created by Kenneth Graham in his classic novel, Wind in the Willows, is the basis for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I can tell you nomenclature-wise, the word playboy was taken out not long after this was written. The attraction is based on Toadie's mania for fast motor cars and highlights the wild chase from the film released by Walt Disney Productions in 1949 featuring the Wind in the Willow characters. Guests will board replicas of the antique car that corrupted Toadie and follow his thrilling route through the countryside and towns of England. There are two completely separate routes in this double-sided attraction, creating two attractions in one building. And that is true. It was a very wide um, boarding area because you would actually see um, two, uh, two groups of cars being loaded and unloaded, and they would come toward each other uh, before they actually took hard turns and then went in and then they kind of mingle around each other particularly in the town um, 
uh, square of that time. So it was a very um, it was a very unique um, layout of Mr. Toad, and um, we we could talk about that on another day. But but um, when they made it into the mini adventures of Winnie the Pooh, they actually took a portion of that attraction and created the gift shop that you see. That's why um, that gift shop did not exist before. And so they were able, because of the amount of space the old one had taken, they were actually able to carve out space for a gift shop, which was very important because that's why they were choosing Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh was chosen because it was the second most um, merchandise character after Mickey Mouse. Um, and, And so they wanted something that uh, seized that opportunity. It's a small world. It's a small world was first presented in the New York World Fair in 64 and 65, and then installed at Disneyland in 1966. Here is a wonderland of beauty, happiness, and excitement portrayed by children from all over the world singing It's a Small World theme in their own languages. Traveling the seven seas by boat, visitors will experience more than a hundred areas that are represented in the show by audio-animatronic children wearing costumes symbolic of their geographic locales. This waterborne musical is propelled by the flow of water from pumps spaced at the bottom of the flume. The bright, gay, colorful sets are a child's dream in reality. Young hearts of all races in unison and harmony. You know what? I, I have said on repeated occasions the Pirates of the Caribbean, when it was built a couple of years after the opening of the Magic Kingdom of Walt Disney World, was the first to have an indoor queue. In truth, this was actually the first indoor queue for an attraction because the one at Disneyland is, is clearly not only an outdoor queue, it was an outdoor boarding area. Um, and all that was brought in. One of the challenges is, is when they enclose that space, that alleyway between Small World and Pirates became increasingly narrower. And that has created the problems that have always existed in that section of the park. It is too tight to get through there. There is not enough space um, for the guest flow. Snow White's Adventures. The setting for Snow White's Adventures are adopted from Walt Disney's first full-length animated motion picture released in 1937. When the guests board one of the woodcutter's carts, they relive Snow White's adventures as she wanders through the dark forest, meets the seven dwarfs, and even travels deep into the famous diamond mine. Of course, at every turn, the evil queen, transformed into the witch, tries to make mischief. The result is an exciting story brought to life. That, of course, is Princess Fairytale Hall, Disappointing that that is gone, but not disappointing is the fact that we have a really very cool little Seven Dwarf um, Mine Train ride. Mad Tea Party. The Mad Tea Party was inspired by Lewis Carroll and his story of Alice in Wonderland. Guests board one of 15 brightly colored cups and saucers, each sitting four to six for a whirling, spinning, madcap adventure. Visitors can actually control the speed at which their cups rotate by means of a wheel in the center of each cup. I should have mentioned the Dormouse in the center. That's a very cool piece, but I'm not sure that the Dormouse was there at opening. I need to check that out. Um, It may have been added after they put a canopy over because in the first year or so, there was no canopy over the Mad Tea Party, which created problems when lightning storms came in the summertime, etc., etc. 
I need to check out whether there was a Dormouse. Maybe I can find a picture and put that on Disney at play. The Mickey Mouse Review. The Mickey Mouse Review is a musical extravaganza starring 86 lifelike Disney characters on stage, the same Disney characters who've become famous in Walt Disney's animated classics over the past 40 years. Utilizing the new computerized digital animation control system, DAX, the characters seem real as they perform in three dimensions. Mickey, in formal tie and tails, conducts the 23-piece orchestra and renditions of such Disney Academy Award-winning songs as zippity doo When You Wish Upon a Star. The orchestra features such memorable cartoon characters as King Louie on the xylophone, Goofy on ba bass, Huey, Dewey, and Louie on trumpets, Dumbo and Timothy on tuba, the Mad Hatter and March Hare on clarinet, and Jock and Gus Gus on trombone. The characters perform on an 86-foot wide stage. They range in size from the 12-inch high Dormouse to the 6-foot tall Baloo, the Jungle Book Bear. Mickey himself stands about 40 inches tall. There are a total of 78 different soundtracks used to control the character movements and vocal renditions. The show is prefaced by a pre-show area where guests will view a brief history of animation. The finale is seen on the main stage where all 86 characters will sing M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-C. -E so if you haven't seen the Mickey Mouse review or a video of that, you definitely I'll try to put in a YouTube video of it. Uh, it moved in the 80s. Um, well, it moved... Uh, and in time for the opening of Tokyo Disneyland, they needed more stuff and they didn't have enough um, uh, manpower to build another one. So they just simply moved it out and we lost that show. Um, when they say 86 characters, there's, there's so there's, what it is is there's a 23-piece orchestra, but then the rest of all these characters appear in different vignettes or scenes behind the orchestra uh, that come to life. So it's... a it's a fairly, uh, not fairly, it is a very elaborate show for 1971. That's probably why they're referencing what they call the new computerized digital animation control system, DAX. So what was happening prior to that is, is in the invention of audio animatronics with the Tiki Room and the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, they actually had these kind of things that looked like... Um, um, uh, a vinyl record album and they would cut it and it would it would it would create the movement of the character and what had to happen was there needed to be a digital version of this in order to get the link the lip syncing and movement all going at the same time when they talk about the idea that there are 78 different soundtracks it means that among um, the um, uh, uh, do, 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 how many um, characters in total um, um, but I don't see that right now but at any rate among all of these characters they needed to I guess 86 characters in total each of them had a different soundtrack attached to them which not just produced the music but to the music synced their lips and their and the, all of their gestures and physical movements. So it was a very advanced uh, time. It's, Dax is also a reference to a building that's underneath that in the Utilidor, 
which really houses the mechanics for running all of the attractions through the Magic Kingdom, even show parades and things of that nature. It's, a, it's kind of the technical control rooms, control center of the Magic Kingdom, and it's always been referred to as DAX. The Fantasyland stage. Um, this is where this is just the ultimate chapter. Um, I've read this, and it's repeated in all the handbooks. I've read it in um, the original one with Main Street. But I'm going to read it again because this is an important um, this is an important aspect of Fantasyland. This is the most unique concept of design and construction in Florida, or perhaps the world. Web designers faced up to the unique topography of Walt Disney World's 27,400 acres. Because of the high water table and location, it was decided to raise the stage and use the ground level for essential services. Earth pulled up from the lagoon area was set on the Magic Kingdom theme park site and allowed to settle. This was then tunneled out to create a most unique service system. Here you'll find accounting, main files, the mail room, lock and key, control, the photo laboratory, the print shop, the refrigeration, food storage, warehousing areas for merchandise, wardrobe, cafeteria, and cash control. This ground level area will be a busy people-filled operational facility. So why this is really important is if you recall, you go to Cinderella Castle and you actually ramp up on each side as you enter the castle. That ramping up takes you up a level that allows many of these facilities that are discussed here to be located. And in truth, most of, in fact, the entrance to the Utilidor, the tunnel, is actually behind Pinocchio's village house. And there, you, uh, underneath Pinocchio's Village House, is where you find the main um, cafeteria. On the other side, traditionally, they've had locker room areas and costuming. That has since been moved to an area behind the Magic Kingdom, about a mile away. But um, cash control was located in this area. Lots of facilities. Dax, which I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Something called the zoo is kept um, underneath in the area of the carousel and the zoo actually represents the place for all Disney characters to gather in preparation for their appearance. So there's a lot that goes on and it's and that's one of the things that you end up seeing if you think about the elevation. Fantasyland sits higher than other areas because of um, because so many of their facilities and utilities are located underneath Fantasyland. It may also explain why so many attractions exist in Fantasyland because they knew having built those facilities they needed to build the attractions on top at that time and not come back to it. So a lot of it um, a lot of it just simply got built out and it was it was just all put in place so it didn't have to be reconstructed or or constructed further after opening. Of course there's been changes over the year years and so forth. And the Fantasyland Forest is not underneath, nor was 20,000 Leagues, underneath the Utilidor. Just simply that big area, which is basically Cinderella Courtyard, leading from the castle all the way to Pinocchio's village. So, and, and if you know, when you go into It's a Small World, you ramp back down to actually go on the ride. Again, it's all about elevation and what's what's going on. In this um, in in this area of the park, 
So you can imagine if you had never been to Disney Park and your first your first steps when you got to the Magic Kingdom were probably going upstairs and being right in the heart of Fantasyland and how unique and unusual that was with this utility basement underneath and at the same time this world of fantasy on top with all these attractions and experiences for a new cast member that was that was pretty remarkable uh, for its time well thank you for joining me for this Disney at play podcast I um, I just uh, appreciate you being a part and listening I appreciate you sharing this with others so they have a chance to hear this podcast if you know people who love Disney we try to uh, we try to cater to those very individuals and I hope we're catering to your needs as well uh, if you have a chance check out our Wayfinder Society which is our patreon group it's a great place to um, help support this uh, podcast and uh, some of the other great things we're doing here at Disney at Play and Disney at Work again thank you for joining us finally in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage always follow the compass of your heart have a great day. We'll see you real soon.